Hey Angela, hey Varsha, we've got a new government in Canberra. Yesterday I was asking Daisy, the golden retriever who visits our office almost every day, what she wants from a new government. She wants a legislated seven-day work week so she can come into the office every single day. What about Scouse up in Canberra? What does he want? Yeah, Scouse is our blue healer who's our canine bureau in our national capital and he's a bit disappointed at the moment that there hasn't been a minister for canine affairs appointed. But he's hopeful for a play date with Toto, Albanese's <laughs> dog, in the future. <laughs> and Archie? Well, Archie, our youngest in the Canine Bureau, I think he just wants concessions so he can have endless plays and treats all around every day. Ah, right. Very clever of Archie. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Source Pod. Hi, I'm Angela Lehman, Head of Research at the Ligon Group. I'm Varsha Devi Balakrishnan, the Education Analyst at the Ligon Group. And I'm Jeffrey Smart, one of the co-founders of the Ligon Group. This is The Source Pod, our podcast about all things international education. And we thought it would be really important to focus on what a new government could mean for international education. I mean, you guys, you listeners, the people we know keep on asking us all the time, what is the new government going to do? Are they going to be supportive of international education? When will they get around to doing things about international education. So we thought it would be really important to look at what we can expect from a new government and really importantly, what do we as a sector want from the new government? And we've got some terrific guests to help us explore this topic. We're joined on this podcast by the Honourable Julian Hill, MP. He's the member for the South East Melbourne federal seat of Bruce. Julian has just been elected to his third term as the member for Bruce, and he's a great friend and supporter of international education. We're also joined today by the Honourable Phil Honeywood, the Chief Executive Officer of the International Education Association of Australia. Phil has been IEAA's Chief Executive Officer since November 2011. Previously, he was a member of the Victorian State Parliament. He's been the Minister for Tertiary Education Training and Multicultural Affairs, and Deputy Leader of the Opposition. We're thrilled to have Phil join us today on the pod. It's all the honourables, isn't it, really, that we've got on the pod today? So we thought we might start with what the new government has inherited. It's inherited a lot, obviously, a damaged sector with a lot of reputation rebuilding to be done. I think the new Minister for Education, Jason Clare, said as much in his speech at the Universities Australia conference. Before we get to our guests, Varsha, you and I had the privilege of being involved in ATN University's Election Watch program in the lead up to the federal election. And we were basically listening to the digiverse, if you like, listening to what voters were talking about in the election. And we also cottoned on to what international students were thinking about the election. What did we hear? Yeah, Jeffrey, we were hearing quite a bit from international students during that point. I think um, there was a sense of concern for international students if Scott Morrison were to get re-elected as prime minister, what would that mean for them? But more broadly, they were also discussing cost of living, housing affordability, migration and PR pathways and employment and work rights. So if a new government were to come in for them at that point, what would that mean and how would that you know, benefit their international student experience really? Yeah, it's so interesting that international students are actually paying attention to the federal election. We asked Julian Hill what he thinks the new government has inherited in international education. 
First and foremost, in the short term, there's the issue about ongoing recovery from COVID and uh, getting students back on shore. It's a particular problem, of course, from China, which is more to do with logistical difficulties now, I think, than, than any other aspect. If you reflect on the last few years through COVID, we've got to be honest, we've got significant reputational damage, I think, to repair from um, the Morrison government's mishandling of the sector. Um, some of it through uh, willful ignorance, but some of it almost deliberate damage and a strange deliberate hostility to what was Australia's fourth biggest export sector. Um, the tone that the former Prime Minister used to talk about the sector over some years was at times actively hostile. And the messaging to students during a pandemic, telling students to go home, blaming international students for people not being able to get a seat on the train or a spot driving on the freeway, um, not rather than his own government's failure to in invest in infrastructure. Uh, but these things have ongoing impacts. It's a word of mouth sector. International students talk to their family, they talk to their friends. And that sense that they just weren't welcome in Australia that many students unfortunately got, which I think overall is certainly not the case. Uh, there's reputational damage that needs to be repaired. There's also a consequence of that kind of political leadership undermining community attitudes and, if you like, the social licence for the sector, perpetuating silly stereotypes that somehow international students take our kids' places at universities rather than actually provide revenue to build capital to create more places at universities, as the truth really is. So there's a reputation repair job. You know, the way that we um, treated international students during the pandemic leaves a lot to be desired. I would have hoped if my daughter, your children, were studying in a foreign country and calamity struck in the form of a pandemic, that those countries would have looked after our kids with a little more care and concern than the Australian government showed to often vulnerable young people being hosted in our society. So we've heard what Julian feels the government has inherited in international education. And you spoke earlier, Varsha, about what social insights we picked up through social listening pre-election. What are we hearing from international students now? Are they still interested in the change of government? Yes, they're still very much tuned into the outcome of the elections and the fact that there's a new government. I think there is a sense of hope for them as to what would this mean for them in terms of career pathways and migration pathways. Unfortunately, there is still a lingering uncertainty among international students because they feel that they are stepping up to help the current labour shortage that's happening in Australia. So there's a sense of hopefulness that Australia will value their contributions and the new government would possibly offer PR pathways for them. And they're drawing comparisons to how Canada did a similar thing during the pandemic. So whilst others are more cautious and concerned that Australia might also say go back home once the labour market has recovered. So there's a real sense of what will the government do? How will they do right by us, really? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of leftover issues that the new government is going to need to be getting on top of. And migration certainly is something that the students are, are talking about. But it's also beyond the students, isn't it? It's industry and, and a lot of parts of Australian society right now are talking about this issue. So the change of government has come about at a time when international students are really actively talking about politics in Australia. And the new government is facing some significant challenges in rebuilding trust and reputation amongst students. We asked Julian about what he thought the most urgent challenges for the sector are. We've also got some policy hangovers. For example, an important one to resolve, I think, sooner rather than later is the issue of work rights. 
I've got a firm belief that the education visa is an education visa. The student visa is an education visa, not a de facto low-skilled work visa. And yet the move to remove the limits on student working hours across more and more sectors is a retrograde step for the sector itself overall, I believe. And look, that's a contested view in some quarters, but I've got a pretty firm view on that. And then, of course, there's the China relationship. The bilateral relationship has been troubled for some time. China, of course, is Australia's largest trading partner, and there's much mutual benefit to the relationship if we can see things improve. Now, the Prime Minister's noted that trade disruptions on Australian exports need to be withdrawn for that to happen, and that's part of the geopolitical relationship. And I think we can manage the complex relationship with China diplomatically and appropriately and not see it misused for domestic political purposes, which the former government had certainly engaged in. We can recognise and address strategic competition in a mature way, but international ed is a sector where there's so much mutual benefit for Australia and China as our largest source of onshore students that I would hope that that goodwill bilaterally, we could find ways to continue to work together productively, um, notwithstanding the ongoing tensions in the geopolitical relationship. And it's welcome that we've seen signs from the Chinese government in more recent times that they also would like to see students come back on shore, that some of the harsher and frankly unfounded rhetoric about Australia being a dangerous place and the, the more hyperbolic nonsense which had been said for some time um, started to dissipate. Julian got a tiny bit controversial when he touched on what he sees as a need to take a light touch approach to regulating education agents, a topic that has been floating around for some time. And Julian's concern is really around ensuring we protect students and that we protect the very many good quality agents, the amazing people who sell international education in Australia from agents who do the wrong thing. This is what he told us. So I do think there's a case for a light-touch regulatory regime. I'll say light-touch, 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 lets the universities fall off their little chairs. You know, the ESOS Act already requires the providers to collect just about all the information you need on agents. This is not some big reg tape thing. It can be a self-regulatory model. I'd put the proposition that we could look at a light-touch scaled licensing model. So simply so that there's some consumer protection recourse for students or people who've had the wrong end of an agent, and so there's a way of kicking the bad operators out of the market. You know, we regulate all sorts of professions. It should be seen as a privilege to sell Australian international education to often vulnerable consumers. And if you've done the wrong thing, you should be kicked out of the market, not just shut down your business and Phoenix to another dodgy operator the next day. It would protect the good agents. And the main argument against that is the mar and par agents that universities tell us about. We'll make that a light touch fit for purpose, you know, a $50 fee to register them. All it is is a stick to kick them out if they're doing the wrong thing. International students definitely felt supported by Julian throughout the pandemic. They retweeted, they held on to every single word and comment that he posted on his social media. And they felt that he was the person who not only empathised with their situation, but really became the voice for their concerns and heavily lobbied for what they were going through, even though they weren't voters. So he saw them really as human beings and really resonated with a lot of students, how he saw them as a group of students that needed lobbying for and that they were left out of a lot of conversations that were happening. I got terrific engagement when I spoke in the parliament about international education, international student issues. Um, it continues with the theme that my staff tell me I'm most popular amongst people who can't vote. But, you know, I, I felt it was important morally 
to speak up for people who are in a vulnerable position in our country's care. You know, young people, often in their late teens or early 20s, their first time living away from home in a foreign country, economic circumstances in their home country may have deteriorated, their parents less able or unable to support them. You've got to deal with that. You know, it was our temples, the gurdwaras, the charitable institutions across Melbourne suburbs, in many cases, that were actually providing food for these young people in the middle of a global crisis. And I felt our government should do more. So I felt there was a moral responsibility. And yes, I got terrific feedback. Yes, very popular amongst international students, if only they could vote. So we've heard a lot about what the new government has inherited. What can we expect from a new government? That's what we'll talk about next. So one of the questions we get all the time is, what will the new government do for international education? And all kinds of variations on when will the new government get around to doing stuff to repair the damage of the closed border years? Phil Honeywood started out by emphasising that we can expect empathy and nuance from the new government, or in fact, that maybe we want more empathy and nuance from the new government. So I think first what we can expect from the government is something very different, more positive, (laughs) of a very low base compared to the previous government. And clearly the previous government did our international education community enormous harm when they told students to go home two years ago. And as we know, a lot of international students come from uh, nations where if the leader of the country says uh, something akin to go home, it's regarded as an instruction rather than a suggestion. So uh, what we can expect from the new government is a lot more empathy a lot more identification of issues that need to be more nuanced. And we've seen that already with um, Minister Penny Wong's visit to Malaysia, where clearly in returning to her home town, we've turned over a new leaf really in terms of engagement with um, our region and walking the walk on um, intercultural understanding and um, inclusion. So the new government is off to a very busy start. They've got an agenda that they took to the election that they need to implement, and they're dealing with global economic and health events, as they say. There's a lot being thrown at the new government. We asked Julian what priority international education has in this crowded agenda. Here's what he told us. There is a big domestic agenda, and that's been outlined at the election, as well as you know, a pretty heavy geostrategic international agenda that we're, we're grappling with. Look, one of the difficulties, this is not a partisan comment at all. Um, I think there's a fair reflection for education ministers from both sides of politics. International education is always important, but it's really urgent. And that is one of the conundrums. If you were sitting there as a senior cabinet minister with all of the responsibilities you have in the education portfolio, rarely would international education rank in the top 10. Now, in some senses, that's not a bad thing because Things that sit on ministers' top 10 priorities on their cabinet desk are not usually in a good shape. So, you know, that's, it's not the worst thing in the world to not be in the firing line. I think Julian makes a really good and interesting point. While we in the sector might hope for the new ministry to be leaping all over international education, implementing policies and new messaging, it's actually positive that we're not one of the problems sitting in the inbox of cabinet ministers. Having said that, We have seen some good signs from government, particularly around visa processing. Julian also touched on what the sector can expect from an Albanese government. I think a few of the things that you could expect to see and will expect to see from a Labor government. Firstly, we're not hostile to the sector. We're not going to see the repeat of Scott Morrison's demeanour and attitude and language where there's overt hostility to international education. You'll find a government 
that's inherently and fundamentally supportive and understands both the economic benefits but also the social cultural benefits and the soft power that the sector brings. So international ed as a service sector where Australia's got enormous comparative advantages has great potential to contribute to that economic growth. So, you know, we'll make no bones about placing priority on economic growth. But I think if you also look in the government's first, what, few weeks, couple of months, it's been terrific to see, at least from my perspective, you would expect me to say that, it's been terrific to see Elbow and, sorry, Prime Minister Elbow and Foreign Minister Penny Wong both behaving like adults, but also presenting a completely different face to Australian diplomacy in the region out there collaborating, listening, um, mutual interests in the Pacific around climate change. And in that sense, understanding the soft power, as someone like Penny Wong inherently does, um, understanding the soft power benefits to Australian diplomacy and our geostrategic interests that international education has, can and must continue to bring to Australia in the coming decades uh, is really important. Look, the final thing I'd say, there are advocates for international ed within the government, myself, no doubt, but also others who appreciate the importance of the sector. I've already spoken with the new minister, Jason Clare, who's interested to engage with the sector um, and work collaboratively. Julian also described to us that one of the key policy challenges facing the new government in international education and other areas almost immediately is the blowout in visa processing delays. This is what he told us. There are issues, I'll say it here again, Angela heard me say it at the ACBC conference, the Department of Home Affairs, in my view, is a broken department. The Liberals cut thousands of staff over their nearly decade in office. It's got the worst cultural survey outcomes of any of the large Commonwealth entities. You know, the public servants say it hasn't been a great place to work. Um, I call it the Department of Human Misery and Economic Carnage. Yeah, I see it every day in my multicultural electorate, just visa delays of months or years preventing families being together, people who've never met their own children and in the, in the international education sector growing concerns about delays or decisions that can't be understood properly are going to cause economic impacts in the sector. And it's going to be a real challenge for the government to start to rebuild that department because it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just wave your magic wand and create new public servants with security clearances trained, ready to start issuing visas. So let's move on to what this sector wants from the new government. As we've heard, the government is off to a pretty good start. Minister Jason Clare's speech at the UA conference was welcome. He acknowledged a bunch of issues that need action or are being acted upon, i.e. visa processing, and he signalled that the new government sees international education as a critical sector. The opposition spokesperson for education at the UA conference indicated that he was setting an early test for the new government, a decision on the new new Colombo plan. So while it's fantastic to see some of these early moves on the part of the new government, we at the Ligon Group want one or two big things. We want a full-throated prime ministerial statement on the importance of international education for our country and a heartfelt message that international students are truly welcome here. We do have a lot of repair to do. And a prime ministerial statement, I think, is the way to go. We also think that over in the UK, Boris Johnson is on his way out as the prime minister. 
But his government's appointment of an international education champion, Sir Steve Smith, it continues to pay dividends for the UK sector. A person of gravitas who is able to lead delegations, speak on behalf of the government and really promote the UK as an international education sector. Prime Minister Trudeau's government in Canada with their international education friendly messaging and policy ecosystem have really entrenched Canada as a major rival to Australia. So the other thing that the Ligon Group would like to see from the new government is the appointment of an international education champion, an international education ambassador, if you like, someone who can show up turn up and speak up on behalf of the sector internationally, someone with gravitas to represent our sector. We've got a whole lot of ex-PMs hanging around and ex-ministers who could possibly do the job. We've got a few ideas. Um, The former education minister, Chris Evans, the international education champion and current governor of Western Australia, Kim Beasley, or Greg Combay, former foreign minister, Stephen Smith, former senator, Christina Keneally, or former premiers, Jay Weatherall, Stephen Marshall or Colin Barnett. There's just to name a few of the people that we think could fill the role of international education champion. One of the big challenges our public universities are currently dealing with is the diversification agenda by the previous government. We asked Julian for his insights into what the new government might do on this requirement. If it were easy, though, it would have happened. We do face some of the same conundrums we face with many other export sectors. And in the world, but particularly the Indo-Pacific region, there's two elephants, India and China. They have more than a billion people each. It's kind of not rocket science or rocket surgery, my favourite Warwick Kappa quote, to think that, (laughs) you know, markets that you're engaging with are going to be dominated by the two largest elephants in the world, India and China. So I just make that point. It shouldn't be a controversial objective. Some of the media reporting's been framed around unhealthy reliance on China. You know, that's for others to comment on. We should welcome Chinese students, and we do. But it's been a long-standing objective to try and diversify away for all sorts of good reasons, not just the economic coercion issues in the geostrategic space, but also diversity in the classrooms, diversity on campuses. So, yes, I think we would persist with diversification, recognising that it's not straightforward to achieve, But there are markets, parts of the world, where I think we can and should do more. You know, we had good success with the strategy that we put in place in the Victorian government for some time with Latin America. I think there's probably more we could do with Africa. Some of that comes back to visa issues and uh, some of it just comes back to sort of having a long-standing presence in those markets. You know, there are issues in Southeast Asia where increasingly, you know, former source countries are turning into destination and competitor countries. That's a natural evolution. So all of that stuff will continue to churn, but I I don't think some of the controversy around diversification is really warranted. It's just, yeah, we should try that, but sure, it's going to be hard. Okay, so we're an international education podcast. We're not a sports podcast, but you heard that right. Uh, Julian quoted an ex-AFL player right there. So I guess we're making our move into sports podcasting. Phil Honeywood outlined one of the key asks IEAA has at the new government, some certainty around learning abroad funding. Now, we know that Australian students are eager to jump on planes and have an in-person learning abroad experience. This is what Phil told us. I think on the flip side, we've yet to really ascertain from the new government where they sit with learning abroad. We've had different messages in the last several elections from the Labor Party about their support, both in terms of funding and um, in terms of the 
components of new Colombo plan. And we really wanted to hear clarification on where that sits, you know, because as an international education community, we want to see a two-way flow of students, so that our own domestic students better understand the issues that their international student counterparts um, and peers face. Uh, and obviously, that's got to be a benefit for our nation, the more our own young people engage with our region. So clearly, we want to find out what's going on there in terms of is it going to be expanded to public TAFE students? Is there going to be any funding reductions? Is it going to be rebadged, given that New Columbia Plan has become well known in the region? Um, mm. So that, that will be another issue we have to really get clarification on from the government. Phil and IEAA also want to see some action on migration pathways and on the pandemic era changes that were made to the amount of hours international students could work while studying. I've read at least one uh, media statement from uh, Minister Clare, where he's attested to the fact that we shouldn't be offering all these wonderful international education options and access for international students if we're not willing to provide migration outcomes. So again, that's a really important message. The previous government was really led by the nose by the big end of town, by corporate Australia, who just wanted a workforce to supplement you know, the existing workforce issues they had. So there was no consultation by then Immigration Minister Alex Hawke with our sector regarding uncapped work rights. And you know, we all know that this has got... Uh, I mean, it's a movie we've seen before and it doesn't have a happy ending because we're going to have a lot of international students who are going to come under pressure from families, or they already are, back in the home country to work 120 hours, 130 hours a week in three different jobs whilst attempting to still be a full-time student. And that's not good for academic progress. It's not good for education providers who are trying to ensure that their students get through their course. And it's certainly not good for the mental health of these young people coming under pressure. The working hours issue certainly raises a lot of really vital questions. With an Australia facing really serious skills shortages, what is the role of international education in our national skilled migration agenda? Phil spoke about Australia's migration settings and the importance of getting this right. We come to then, I guess, the issue you've correctly raised around migration and we really have to return to a big Australia policy. I think that, uh, I know I editorialised on this during the election campaign where I referred to it as the elephant in the room that neither major party wanted to really address. Worried about Pauline Hanson and Jackie Lambie et al, the whole xenophobe issue coming to the fore during an election. But whichever party had won the federal election, they would have had to tackle this issue because any economist will tell you, how do you get rid of a, a $1 trillion debt? You bring in lots of young migrants who will get more homes constructed. There'll be more jobs created just by dint of that number of uh, new migrants. And separate from that, of course, the big end of town on this occasion might actually assist international students rather than uncapped work rights. Corporate Australia clearly are saying we've got 480,000 jobs that need to be filled. We can't do that with temporary workers. We have to have uh, migration pathways identified. Now, if Canada can do it, and right throughout the pandemic, Canada's been providing migration pathways for international students, then we can do it too. And uh, again, we're looking forward to having a conversation with an, a number of the new federal cabinet ministers around, let's clearly identify how we ramp up, ratchet up the most appropriate migration settings. 
So let's get a little bit wonky because, you know, we're international education nerds at the Ligon Group. Um, we've heard from Julian and Phil about what we can expect and what the sector wants from a new government. And we all know that international education thrives when there is as much bipartisan support for it as possible, no matter what level of government or colour of government. So we thought we would ask Julian and Phil to talk about the relatively new parliamentary friendship group for international education, its purpose, and why it's important in, as Julian told us, in building literacy in international education amongst parliamentarians. In the 46th parliament, the one that just gone, the friendship group was co-chaired by two great supporters of international education in the House of Representatives, Labor's Julian Hill and the Liberal Party's Julian Lisa. This is what Julian had to say. I felt that the purpose of creating a parliamentary friends group for international education was first and foremost to try and build literacy and understanding amongst parliamentarians and elected reps and their staff of the international education sector. Overall, I've found um, in my time in parliament that there's a very, very low understanding of the complexity, the benefits, the issues of international ed amongst parliamentarians, state and federal. And I just find that peculiar. If you look at the economic impact, let's just take that, which I do get frustrated at times that that's often where the conversation nationally stops. But just take the economic impact. It was our fourth biggest export sector. It slipped, I think, from third to fourth when gas overtook it as the new gas supply contracts came on. You know, an elephant in the economy in any sense. Um, international aid employs directly more Australians than the mining sector or the agriculture sector in terms of the direct employment numbers. There's endless discussion about mining and resources, rightly so. You know, Australia should be proud of our mining and resources sector and the contribution it makes to the world and national wealth. Uh, but equally, we should also have an understanding of international education. It should be something we are so proud of as a nation that over the last few decades, we've grown this global superstar of an industry uh, that contributes to society, contributes to the economy. So that was the primary purpose of forming a friendship group. Get a bunch of MPs who said, yeah, okay, I'll support the international ed sector and have a couple of events a year where we might hear from students or hear from industry leaders and improve the literacy in the parliament around these policy issues in a bipartisan way. Fundamentally, international ed does no harm. It doesn't poison the water. There's no remediation issues that we need to grapple with. It doesn't destroy Aboriginal cultural heritage if it goes wrong. It's a sector which overwhelmingly does good in the country and the world, and you know, it should be a source of bipartisan endeavour. A lot of what Julian has said really resonated with me, being a past international student myself. I think social licence is so important in the communities that international students live in, and that really comes from who is representing the people and what they have to say about international students. So having this group that speaks well of international students and how international students are contributing to Australia really does so much in improving the social license in the communities that international students are really embedded into. Phil Honeywood also spoke about the importance of the parliamentarian group. I identified this as an issue some years ago and took quite a while to get support of it through Julian Hill's incredible advocacy. We were able to take that position up to the Speaker of the Parliament and to the President of the Upper House and to become an officially recognised parliamentary friends group. Uh, Unfortunately, that occurred sort of some time after COVID hit. So we were recognised as a parliamentary friendship group by the Speaker and the President of the Senate as well. Uh, We got 43 senators and House of MPs signed up 
uh, from the Greens, from Nationals and Labor and Liberal. We had one online meeting to date, which uh, was went really well. Some really good questions asked by the members of Parliament, and we were really excited to be having an official launch at Parliament House where we have a cocktail party. Uh, nothing better bring MPs together when they're in their own building and they're getting free canapes and uh, <laughs> drinks <laughs> for networking. But um, unfortunately, Parliament House just stopped all catering events during COVID. So I'm working with uh, Julian and also we've got to have a parliamentary friendship group. Officially, you need to have a co-chair. Uh, so we have Julian Lesser, uh, the um, federal MP who's very much involved in Indigenous affairs as well. Uh, Julian Lesser is from North Sydney is the co-chair with Julian Hill, the two Julians, and we're looking forward to having, would you believe, an official physical launch, and we're going to invite a range of stakeholders, including all peak bodies, to that launch at Parliament House sometime uh, later this year. We asked Phil about the role of the National Council for International Education as a way of engaging with the seven key ministers under the previous government who have portfolio crossover with international education in some way. And Phil actually started with a confession. He was once an advocate for the appointment of a junior minister or parliamentary secretary for international education, but he no longer thinks that that is the best way to get cabinet ministers focused on the sector. This is what he told us. To be honest, my view on this changed when I was involved in that junior ministry or that particular minister because they didn't have a voice around the cabinet table. So what that meant was that, yes, you had a designated minister for international education, but they were a junior minister with other portfolios and they had to then be your champion to go to designated cabinet ministers to have cabinet discuss an issue of importance to our sector. So what really annoyed me there was that, you know, whilst Malcolm Turnbull was able to correctly say to me, yes, we've given you what you wanted, around the cabinet table, we just didn't have a voice. And so on that basis, I've now become an advocate for having powerful cabinet ministers, be it in relevant portfolios, be it education, trade, immigration, home affairs, who can then take to cabinet rather than having to wait for a filter for a junior minister, take to actual cabinet a discussion on some of the issues that do affect us. So that's my strong belief now. I also still have a strong belief in the benefit of the National Council for International Education, which I'm the convener of, uh, with 11 non-ministerial expert members and with seven federal ministers. To the credit of the previous government, they did take that seriously insofar as we did have a minimum of one meeting of the seven federal ministers and the 11 expert members each year in November at Parliament House. And you know sometimes the bells would ring and the minister would have to duck out. But last November, for example, we had all seven federal ministers in the room, all cabinet ministers, discussing some of the issues we had. So on that basis, I really believe that I don't care who's on the National Council. <laughs> I'm not precious about that. But that needs to be reinvigorated um, uh, as a meaningful way of having stakeholders take to a gaggle of federal ministers at least once a year some of the issues. So what have we talked about today? We've talked about what will the changing of the guard, that is the new federal government, mean for Australia's international education sector. Today we've heard from two true leaders at the front of this. 
the Honourable Julian Hill and the Honourable Phil Honeywood. They talked to us about policy hangovers and reputational damage and some of the immediate challenges facing the new government. We think there's some positive signs, though. The Parliamentary Friends of International Education is a really great place to start for building literacy among a variety of government portfolios and about the role our sector plays in Australia's national success story. We think that the time is ripe for a strong national statement from the new Prime Minister welcoming students to Australia. We also think that appointing an independent spokesperson for the sector would facilitate this positive signalling and better engagement in Australian communities. As they might say in the House of Representatives, hear, hear, Angela. (laughs) (laughs) You can subscribe to The Source Port wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for The Ligon Group. You can subscribe to The Source, the companion newsletter to this podcast at theligongroup.com. And you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to get updates. So that was really good fun, wasn't it? Thanks very much, Angela. Thanks, Varsha. And thanks to everyone for listening. See you. See you next time. I'm ahead of the game.